Today's episode of Section 422 is brought to you by Hawthorne. Smelling good is important, and thanks to Hawthorne, smelling good is easier than ever. It's time to move on from that old bottle of cologne and start taking care of your hair and skin. Take a quick two-minute quiz, and Hawthorne will tell you the products that are best for you, including two colognes, one for work and one for play, along with a full complement of shampoo, conditioner, body wash, deodorant, and lotions that smell great and are free of sulfate, silicone, and aluminum. All of Hawthorne's products are cruelty-free as well. You can even take the quiz for someone else to find the perfect Father's Day gift for Dad. Hawthorne is totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. Check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with the E and .co, not .com, hawthorne.co. And use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's hawthorne.co. And use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. These guys are barrels of fun. This is section 422. Welcome to the section 422 podcast, episode number 62. It is Monday, June 15th. Derek Van Riper here with Will Salmon. On this episode, we'll be joined by Keith Law, senior baseball writer at The Athletic, to discuss the players selected by the Brewers in last week's first-year player draft. We'll talk about a few other prospects in the system as well as we seemingly inch closer to the 2020 Major League season. Will, how's it going for you on this Monday? Seemingly and hopefully, right? Um, so there's <laughs> some optimism. That, that, that's good, at least. That's a nice step forward. For a new fresh week. I'm excited to hear from Keith. Excited to hear what he has to say about the Brewers five picks from last week. It seemed like they had they had some uh, good value picks there with um the requisite word of upside, of course. Uh, but certainly uh, some value there where they picked guys that have really uh, a distinct possibility to outperform where they were taken. Absolutely. Now there are a couple pieces I would recommend that you check out if you haven't seen them already. Will wrote both of them. Uh, the first one is a profile, an electric athlete. Brewers believe they found a gem in outfielder Garrett Mitchell. Be sure to check that one out, as well as the Brewers' focus on up-the-middle college players during day two of the MLB draft. Those will accompany our conversation with Keith very well. Looking for a Father's Day gift or just missing baseball? A company started in a college baseball dugout, hence the name Dugout Mugs, is here to help. Dugout mugs are barrels of a baseball bat that have been turned into a 12-ounce mug, and they're licensed by MLB. So you can get your favorite team, I'm going to assume it's the Brewers, engraved onto a Birchwood baseball bat barrel mug. Perfect for the big game to put on display or to be the life of the party. It's a unique gift for any baseball fan. Go to dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and use promo code MLB30 for 30% off your first purchase. That's dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and code MLB30. Fill that baseball void with your very own dugout mug today. Now it is our pleasure to be joined by Keith Law, senior baseball writer for The Athletic. Keith has been very busy around the MLB draft, having written team-by-team breakdowns of each team's selections. And if you're looking for ideas for a Father's Day gift, Keith has actually written a couple of books about baseball as well. The first was Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball. And more recently, he wrote The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior 
teaches us about ourselves. Both of those books are available anywhere fine books are sold, including bookshop.org. Keith, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So let's start things off with the Brewers' first-round pick last week. Uh, What led Garrett Mitchell to actually being available at 20 overall as a player who was fairly often ranked as a top 10 player in this draft class? So I think there are multiple reasons why Mitchell might have slid to the 20th pick when he was, I think, 12th on my board. And even I wrote, I think he has top 10 overall kind of tools, even in this draft class. The biggest reason is that he has type 1 diabetes and teams could not get comfortable with an everyday player dealing with that condition because we don't have comparables. We don't have examples of successful major league players who dealt with that condition and what it might imply for a player's ability to bounce back, to play every day. Teams don't love uncertainty in the draft in general. They particularly don't love, didn't love uncertainty this year. This was an extremely conservative year, I would say, relative to other years, mostly because teams didn't get to scout players much at all this spring. I do think there are other reasons why Mitchell slid. I've personally said I'm not entirely comfortable with his swing or with how his hands work. I think he's big enough that he should get to at least 45 power, but he's not going to get there the way he swings right now. And he's just going to need some work. And the other thing is he doesn't play for a guy who's really fast, too. He doesn't play with a lot of energy. He doesn't seem like an enthusiastic player. I'm just speaking specifically on the field. And I know that some scouts like to use that as a sort of proxy for how hard is he going to work or does he really enjoy playing the game. I don't know that. I don't think we can really say that, but I can say having seen him play a couple of times, even going back to high school, he's not, yeah, he doesn't play like his hair's on fire, for example. It's not the type of energy you'd expect to see from a player who is this fast and this athletic. I'm not saying I wouldn't take him. I and mean, again, I ranked him higher than he was actually taken, but these are things I've specifically heard from teams as I was talking about Mitchell leading up to the draft. That's interesting, Keith. I had heard from couple of people who said he would he has the potential to be sort of a top five guy if he ever does develop that sort of power so I, I guess the, the way the Brewers have explained it is they've seen it in in batting practice and I don't know how you could kind of relate that to, to the game and, and add to I guess um, the description of him but some people have said that he would be that top top five guy if he could sort of tap into that power. Is it a question of like the swing? I mean, I heard somebody say that it's like the lower half of his swing that needs some refining. Is it that or is it, or is there other parts of it as well? It's his hands. I mean, this all starts with his hands, the way his hands work, the length, the time it's going to take for him to get his hands to the zone. Yeah, and what that's going to imply also, I think, for recognition and ability to hit off speed stuff. I don't think it's unworkable. I mean, most guys who are really good athletes, you can do something with their swings at least. And his swing is not so bad that he hasn't hit. He's performed reasonably well. It's just he should be better. Uh, I would also say as well, this is about redoing, reworking his swing so that he makes more contact. Thinking if he gets to more contact, he's strong enough that he'll get to enough power. I don't think he's ever going to be a 20 homer guy. But the way he runs, I don't think he needs to ever be a 20-homer guy. This guy's just got to put the ball in play with higher quality contact. And good things will happen. When you're that fast, you're going to get some extra bases. More of those balls that fall into play are going to end up becoming hits. And I think if he does that, 
he's got a chance to be someone who maybe hits at the top of the order. And we didn't even talk about it. It's a, it's a plus defender in center with a 55 or better arm. He's got a lot of ways to add value. It's just for him to get to his potential, he's going to need some work on the swing. And, and I think the Brewers can do that. I think lots of teams can do that now. As long as the kid is willing, uh, I think he's got that not just everyday upside, but above average to star level upside. Yeah, I think that's what you're looking for in that spot. At least you have that safe floor, thanks in large part to that defense, but you have the potential for a lot more if you can fix the swing. Uh, scouts and, and draft analysts seem a little bit divided on Freddie Zamora, who the Brewers took in the second round. He's a shortstop out of the University of Miami. Do you think he stays at shortstop in the long run? And just how much do you think he's going to hit as he advances against higher level pitching? He's definitely going to stay at, in the middle infield. I think it's more likely that he moves to second base. Uh, his hands are fine. His actions are good. He his average his arm is kind of fringe average to average maybe maybe it's somewhere in that forty five to fifty five range. You're generally looking for a little more arm at short. Also, he just need to be would need to be reliable, more consistent on the routine play at shortstop than he's ever shown himself to be. Uh, he can hit. He can put the ball in play. He's not going to have any power, but that's fine. If you play in the middle infield, but you hit for a high average, you can get away with not having power. But the number one thing that people say about Zamora, you know, he was suspended for disciplinary, disciplinary reasons at the start of the season. This apparently isn't the first problem that Zamora has had with behavior questions. Uh, he's was generally referred to as somebody who's not shown particularly good makeup in baseball terms. And I think that really hurt him, combined with the fact that he didn't play. Was, he was suspended and then got hurt this spring. So he really didn't get to be seen by scouts at all and maybe change people's minds, too. Makeup is a very nebulous and subjective thing. And a guy who plays really well and shows more effort, changes maybe scout, maybe coaches' opinions of him, can just turn around a bad makeup report. But because that didn't happen, one thing I – I mean, I heard that consistently on Zamora. And I hear – make up things on a lot of players as a general rule don't share them because they are too subjective in Zamora's case it was a little more specific and far more consistent that I was hearing this from many many clubs uh, particularly after the draft why didn't why wasn't Zamora higher on other boards oh well we have real concerns about his makeup that's interesting I think like right after a couple of beat writers myself included for the Brewers had heard about obviously the suspension comes to mind immediately after the pick just because it's out there it's in the articles about his season even before the before the injury that he suffered word was that it was for skipping class but like you I had also heard of other issues as well um, beyond that um, just going further down the list on, on the guys who were picked here uh, Xavier Warren was a guy who who I liked a lot when I, when they picked him and I read up on him and I spoke to some scouts a lot of people like his, his discipline that he showed, uh, coupled with some some of that power, perhaps, but really the versatility. Um, the Brewers, I guess, are going to try him at catcher at first um, and, and kind of see how, how it goes. Uh, he does have the flexibility to play elsewhere, it looks like. How much faith do you have um, that he will hit well enough to be a regular? It's unlikely because he really, he really doesn't have power and his swing is not going to produce power. But the fact that he can catch, and he's caught some. Uh, he's caught some in college. He caught more, I think, in high school. He's played some shortstop. He can definitely play second or third. I think ultimately that's his future, sort of a 
400 at bat a year guy who plays at least those four positions. And look, if you can do all those things, right, you could probably go to, you could probably stand in left field. Uh, I'm sure he could play just about anywhere. But the fact that the idea even of a utility player who can actually catch, not just sort of sit back there, but can catch reasonably well, maybe somebody catches 40 or 50 games a year because your everyday catcher at that point, whatever point he gets to the big leagues, isn't somebody who's catching 130. I think there's real value in that, particularly a guy who does that and can hit for some average and get on base. You know, Austin Barnes has not had the success in the majors that I think a lot of folks, particularly a lot of R&D folks, forecasted for him when he was in Double A, say. But the type of player he was supposed to be with just more juice, more hitting for more uh, hard contact than he's shown in the majors, I think – uh, Warren could be that kind of player. I feel pretty confident that's what the Brewers thought they were getting is a, a multi-position utility guy who plays pretty regularly, regularly and adds value because of the fact that he can actually catch. Yeah, I think Austin Barnes is a, a great comp. I mean, Barnes in the upper levels of the minor leagues was walking a little more than he struck out. I think that was a, a double A, you know, good hit mm-hmm. tool, but just didn't get to a lot of power. And I was surprised at how quickly uh, he fell off. Uh, fourth and fifth rounders for the Brewers, uh, Joey Weimer from the University of Cincinnati, Hayden Cantrell came from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Uh, is there anything that you like about either of those guys as uh, later picks on day two? Weimer from Cincinnati, I don't know if it's Weimer or Weimer, he's a power speed guy who just, the swing doesn't work right now, and he's actually never really hit for average or enough power, even in even in school. There's raw ability there. I mean, it's fourth round. You're not going to get a finished product. And that's a guy you bring in and see if you can. I mean, he'd be more of a swing overhaul. What I'm talking about with Mitchell is sort of some small tweaks to how his hands work. I think here this would be more of trying to find a com- more of a complete change. And I think the pitch recognition hasn't been very good. But in the fourth round, especially if you're taking a college position player, you're not going to get somebody who's potentially a regular or more who's particularly advanced at the plate. And you know, I think it's a reasonable pick for that spot. I actually find Cantrell a little bit more interesting because the tools are there and he just kind of got caught up the spring trying to lift the ball for more power that doesn't really, that's probably not really his game. He's a plus runner. He's got bat speed. He's actually really hit well in the past, including on Cape Cod last summer, which to me is a, a really good indicator, especially this year where we didn't have a spring, but the Cape Cod leagues a wooden bat league. The ball doesn't really carry out there. So guys who hit well on the Cape, they're not always going to hit in pro ball, but I, I like their odds at least. Uh, and he can run, and he's played short. I think given his speed, he ends up, he could end up in center. He may just go to second base first. Maybe he ends up trying to – maybe the Brewers try to have him play all three of those positions and see which ones work. From the fifth round, to get a college position player like that with, some, with, with a real plus tool in the running speed – some ability elsewhere, and particularly if they could just get him back to his old swing. So this is, again, sort of more in the lines of Mitchell. It's not like you're trying to totally rework a swing, saying, oh, just go back to the way you were hitting a year ago. Let's see how that works. Uh, that could be a, a minor steal, because I think if he'd come out the first four weeks of the season and been the same hitter he was last summer, he would have gone a round or two sooner. That's something that I was going to ask you about was just the fact that if, if there was a season, if there was a full season, of course, it looked like Contrell had that sort of uh, track record where he was a, he, he has shown the ability to rebound after slow starts in prior seasons. And so he kind of came to mind as a guy who 
perhaps if given a whole season, um, he would have went earlier. And it was just a partially viewed on what had occurred in those just few weeks. Um, so a long-winded way of saying, I think that the Brewers have guys who have those sort of um, high values or, or the ability um, to produce better than where they were taken. Is there a particular pick, one through five, that, that struck you as in that sort of light? I'm just looking back at them. I, I don't think... Mitchell was going to change anyone's minds with a full season. I think the people who were already either too concerned about the diabetes or about these questions about his energy level, it wasn't going to change. They'd made up their minds. We, we've known who Mitchell was since he was a junior in high school. So, and, I mean, it was a college-heavy draft, too. So a lot of these guys were fairly known quantities. Cantrell is the one of the five who uh, came out not performing the way he'd performed in the past. And he wasn't a top prospect to begin with, but could he have gone higher? Yeah, I, I think so. I think if he'd just come out and just been good, and then people would have – then at that point, there's no question. You just go back – if you say, well, he's you know he's playing at a small school. It's not great competition. Yeah, but he hit on the Cape as opposed to, what the heck? This guy didn't perform at all this spring playing not good competition. Then that raises all kinds of questions as opposed to just let teams default back to the extensive looks they had him on the Cape Cod League which were pretty good. Now, I don't know if that pushed him and would have pushed him maybe as high as the third round, but it certainly, I feel confident saying he would have gone a little bit higher had he had a full spring to turn things around or just not stunk when this season started. This is, in many eyes, the worst farm system in the league, at least it was prior to this draft class, and maybe it'll take some time for this draft class to even impact that ranking, but uh, a big part of it, graduations and, and trades in, in recent years have really thinned out this system I want to talk about Luis Arias for a little bit, just because if you look back at prospect lists from the last couple of seasons when he was still prospect eligible, he was highly regarded. You'd see him near Keston Hira on a lot of lists, and now they're potentially going to share the middle infield in Milwaukee. As you look at Urias and you see a guy whose hit tool was so advanced to young age, and you see some power last year in very unusual circumstances, we'll call them, AAA El Paso and the rabbit ball at AAA, um, kind of driving that power a little bit. Do you believe that Urias can put it all together and, and deliver on some of the potential that we saw in him just a couple of years ago? I'm still in. I do think El Paso especially was the worst thing that could have happened to him because it seems like he got into some pretty bad habits there and started to try to hit for power that he just doesn't have. Uh, he needs to be a contact hitter. And his original swing, certainly when I first saw him as a prospect, his swing was short and direct and had just a little bit of loft. So you'd see some extra base power. But I don't, I think when I originally wrote about him, my God, maybe three years ago, at least two years ago, I think I said he was maybe a 10 to 12 homer guy at his peak. That's probably it. And he shouldn't be trying to hit for power. And it really seemed like going to El Paso. The PCL was using the happy fun ball last year anyway. El Paso is also generally a good place to hit. It was the first time it had a double A team. It's been since it got a triple A team back a couple of years ago. And he decided he was a power hitter. And you could see some changes to the swing too, which didn't help. But I, again, it's it's like I was talking about with Cantrell too, you just go to that player and say, no, hit the way you hit a year ago, two years ago. We want you to go back to being that player and then you'll play. I mean, they, major league teams have the easiest carrot to hold in front of 
players because they could say, look, we've got a job for you. We have playing time for you. You want to play in the big leagues? You need to do this. You need to go back to hitting the way that you used to hit. Uh, I also think he's a, he really needs to play second base. He played some shortstop for San Diego, and he's not bad there, but he will always want a better defender there. Whereas at second base, I think he's got a chance to be plus and at least should be an above average defender. So it's a high contact hitter who's got some on-base skills. We'll hit the ball hard enough that he'll be able to hold up the batting average, but not hit for a ton of power. And she'd give you above average defense at second base. That sounds like a pretty good regular. Yeah, it does kind of lead to this interesting follow-up question. You, know, you look at Keston Hira and what he accomplished as a hitter last year. Clearly, he's not a good defender, at least not yet, at second base. And as you've watched Hira, do you see him possibly fitting in at a different position down the road? Could he play a, a capable left field? I know coming out of the draft, he had an arm injury, and that was a major concern for a lot of teams. But does Keston Hira have another defensive position he can reasonably play to, to get out of the middle infield and, and open up a spot for a, a more capable defender? We don't know, right? He really has he DH'd his junior year at, I think it was Irvine, right? He Where he played... In college, he supposedly he was going to need Tommy John surgery. That was the rumor all spring. So you can take this guy and he can really hit, but he's going to need Tommy John, and then he's going to be out for a while, and you don't know what the arm's going to look like when he comes back. Well, he never did, uh, which is good. But not only is the arm not good, he's just not a very good defender. And I do think he needs another position. Uh, the problem is where do you go from there? It's left field or first base. The only two positions on the diamond that don't really ask a lot of your arm, you can be a decent left fielder without much of an arm. I mean, Coco Crisp had a really good career as a defensive outfielder, and he had a terrible throwing arm. So maybe Hira could do that, but we don't know. And I don't know that he's mobile or agile enough to cover a lot of ground in left field, but you hate to, you know, even setting aside the fact that the Brewers have other options, you hate to move a player like this to first base. So they're in a little bit of a quandary in that the guy's too good of a hitter to not play somewhere every day. He has, he's an everyday player with the bat, but he just doesn't really have a clear spot to play. The one catch, I guess, what's well, not a catch, the, the one positive thing is that we're going to have a DH in the NL pretty soon. Most folks I talked to just this winter, as I was talking about prospects to various you know, player development guys, they all seem to think it was coming by 2022, if not sooner. And I'm in favor of that anyway. But here is one of the players who'd most benefit. You just say, fine, just go DH, just go hit every day maybe he even hits better if he's never worrying about trying to figure out his defense but you they they could use a better defender at second base and the Brewers haven't been overly focused on defense anyway but now that they have guys in the system who could go to that position and provide a defensive improvement as long as they have a spot for Hura to play every day I, I think they'd be they'd be a better club with someone else there we've got one last question for you Keith we're recording this Monday morning June 15th and we could get a lot more information by the end of today about what the 2020 season might look like, but what have you heard about how player development is going to be done with minor leaguers in 2020? I know at one point there was the rumored 30-man MLB roster, 20-man taxi squad, and I'm kind of thinking about guys like Bryce Terang and maybe Ethan Small falls into this camp as well. Like, How do you develop players like that who really aren't major league-ready players, but they need to get reps somewhere when there's probably no minor league baseball this year as i've talked to front office people and scout scouting directors people with some juice at least uh, over the course of the spring and they don't know right they don't know exactly what the format's going to be what structure will be but one thing that came up multiple times is this idea that if we have a taxi squad of minor leaguers who are largely there to replace 
injured players on the major league club, you know, those guys are going to have to play something somewhere uh, just to stay fresh. It could just be simulated games, scrimmages, whatever, on backfields on the you know local high school or something. Why wouldn't you bring your top prospects, even if they're not ready for the majors, just so they're getting some kind of game action? Even if that's a 19-year-old you just took in the draft a year ago, why wouldn't you bring that that kid so he can play? Nobody cares if he doesn't perform, right? He's just still getting repetitions where most players are staying home. And so I think you're going to see that. Now, I don't know what the number is. I wouldn't, I mean, it'd be fascinating to be part of that front office discussion. How many of those guys do you bring? And how young is too young to bring over? Do you bring an 18-year-old who's just come from the Dominican Republic, but who's, you know, who is a $2 million guy is too soon to bring him along? I don't know the answer to that, but I would guess most teams will have three to five prospects who aren't necessarily major league replacements on that taxi squad solely for the purpose of getting them some development time. Because at this point, there were rumors there was going to still be instructional league. It seems bloody unlikely given what's happening with the COVID-19 situation, especially in Arizona. There was talk I heard in March. I still hear this. Oh, MLB is going to try to do an extended Arizona fall league. Same problem. And this isn't a baseball issue. This is an Arizona governing issue. They've just done such a poor job that the cases are still surging there. And can you forecast that far ahead and say, oh, it's going to be safe to play in Arizona in three months? I don't think you can say that. And I say that as somebody who hopes the Arizona Fall League happens because I love going there and I get a lot of work done. But right now, I'm certainly a pessimist on that. And so these taxi squad games, whatever they look like, may be the best opportunity for prospects to actually get playing time in and not have a lost year in 2020. Yeah, I I think that's really the only way they can make it work uh, at this point. Our guest today is Keith Law, senior baseball writer for The Athletic, author of Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball, and his newest book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Both are available anywhere fine books are sold. Check out bookshop.org. Both are available there, and it supports uh, local bookstores as well. Keith, thanks for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash Brewers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash Brewers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, Will. So one of the things that Keith touched on with that last question was the possibility of bringing a select number of prospects along to wherever a taxi squad might play. And I think the important thing is to sort of map out the distinction between who would be on the taxi squad and who would just be available at the complex, wherever that is, whether that's based out of Miller Park or based out of a place you know, like Appleton, which prospects of the Brewers include is probably the main question on most people's minds. I think if you're talking about taxi squad players, it's a lot of the veteran depth guys you and I have talked about on the show. Logan Morrison, Ryan Healy, Ronnie Rodriguez. Those are the position players you're going to have 
at the ready. If they're not already on an expanded roster, those are the guys that are most likely to be on the taxi squad. Whereas guys like Ethan Small and Bryce Terang, uh, I mean, maybe even if you go a little further down, Antoine Kelly, who they drafted last year, I think those are the types of guys you'd see as the the extra prospects that are around to continue their development. Yeah, I think at first you have to look at guys like uh, Corey Ray, for example, or Drew Rasmussen uh, on Al Perdomo. Those guys are still considered prospects, but I feel like those guys are you're in your first tier of guys who are most likely to to be in a taxi squad just because you're you're boosting that number up to about 50 guys in total with uh I guess what 20 or so being on that taxi squad and the names that I listed there all but Rasmussen are not on the 40 man roster um so you would just assume that guys who are on the 40 man have had that first opportunity opportunity to join that taxi squad and then someone like Rasmus Rasmussen is a guy who probably would have helped out the big league club at some point in a regular 2020 uh, who may not have been ready, say, in April or May to do so. But for me, he's a guy who profiles as like that, that next option for you. So those are the first guys under the label of prospect that that come to mind. But then there's also the the folks that you're kind of talking about who just by no means were going to be ready for to help in 2020, regardless of the circumstances. And even with these circumstances, would not be tasked with helping out at the big league level at all either. So it's kind of a different set of questioning of, of how many spots you want to devote to that sort of thing. And I think that what Keith said is is plausible for a lot of teams the three to five mark, maybe less for the Brewers. I do know that they are not ruling that idea out. I mean, I asked David Stearns that exact question just a couple of weeks ago is, would you, what would be the likelihood of, of devoting a couple of spots to, to that sort of situation where you have guys who you want that, you want them to continue to get the requisite work in at a high level. They're your top prospects, that sort of thing, but they just wouldn't have been ready for it to contribute. So you're basically spending a spot on a de- for developmental purposes. And he didn't rule it out. I mean, he said it was definitely a possibility for that to happen. It's just, we just don't know exactly what the numbers are. So it's hard to say, okay, it's going to be three, it's going to be two, it's going to be one. Um, and also we're talking about a team like the Brewers who, have a lot of options for for depth purposes beyond, say, what was going to be an expected opening day roster of 26. Even their 40-man roster offers you a great deal of options with uh, big league experience. Um, there aren't too many prospects on that list. Like th- These are guys who have been there, done that. And even guys who were just on that list of spring invites, Keon Broxson, for example, is another name that comes to mind. As you mentioned, Logan Morrison, guys like that even. I mean, those they can help. They can contribute in some way, uh, depending on how many guys you're able to have access to on a, on a game uh, throughout a week, how often it can change. So many different variables are involved there. So I think we're going to see, regardless of, regardless of all those variables, I think we are going to see at least a couple. I'm not sure if it will be upwards of five for the Brewers, Say if it is a 30-20 split, maybe two would be my guess, two or three. And it could very well be somebody like a Tarang or an Ethan Small. But I think the key, again, will be to see if teams, if the Brewers are part of that that plan to say, hey, you know what, you're not going to be on the taxi squad. We don't expect you to play at all in the big leagues this year, but we'd like you to be around guys who 
could or will play in the big leagues this year to continue development, to continue getting those reps. Uh, I think the, the level for me, like if you're approaching double A or if you played in double A last year, that's kind of at that level where you're you're close, so you could make the taxi squad. Maybe Alec Bettinger, a uh, pitching prospect who spent all of last season at double A, maybe he'd be one of the surprise additions to the taxi squad if you are going to go to that three to five range to pull some young players into the mix there. Uh, whereas someone like a, maybe like a Mario Feliciano, who only had three games at Double A last year, really spent the whole season at High A, young catching prospect. You probably bring him to your complex and have him working with your pitchers, but not actually on the taxi squad. I mean, does that sort of division of of expectations make sense? It makes sense to me, but also keep in mind with the Brewers. They haven't been afraid to to move somebody up quickly too. So what does that mean? Like, what's the the equivalent of that in this situation, or is there one? Does it even matter? Does does what I did what I just bring up even matter? I don't know. I think it's a consideration when we talk about the Brewers, though, that they have been sort of unafraid to to push the guys through if they're excelling. Like why waste their time? That sort of thing. Um, they do have somewhat of a track record of that. Even though I didn't agree with everything with Castaneda's situation last year, they they did promote him through the major leagues and and eventually stuck, of course. But yeah, so it's. One of those things where, again, I think the, the first of all, the, the total number for all these things, it's going to dictate the decision making. Certainly, that's first. But there'll really be some compelling decisions going on with those spots because I'm also thinking, like, say the season is, say, only like 55 games, right? 54 games, something like that. How many guys do you really need to stay ready on that taxi squad? I mean, I guess you're playing still roughly the same amount of games in a, in a certain time span, meaning there won't be that many days off. But then there's also the question, okay, how, how many changes can you make? Um, I don't know, per week or if there's no injury or that sort of thing. Is it only going to be for injuries? I don't know. So, so many questions still need to be answered. But it's definitely one gonna it's definitely regardless going to be the such a compelling thing to to look at when it's all said and done and sort of analyze those last roster spot decisions. Yeah, I mean once we know more about the final plan, which again we we could know later today, after this episode is posted, we may get word from MLB that Commissioner Rob Manfred has decided to move ahead with a plan for a season of 54 games or something in that range. 54 just makes sense as a logical number to me because if you end up splitting up into three 10-team divisions, it means you play the other nine teams in your divisions uh, six times each. So you know, three at home, three on the road, a balanced schedule. It fits in the framework of what Major League Baseball is trying to do by keeping the season short, keeping salaries low, but still potentially preserving the postseason where a ton of revenue comes in. Uh, but again, we'll know more hopefully by this time next week. And uh, even if we don't, I think we're, we're finally trending towards the light at the end of the tunnel to at least have an idea of what baseball in 2020 could look like if we're able to get a season started. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Section 422. You can find Will on Twitter at Will Salmon. I'm at Derek Van Riper. If you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get 40% off at theathletic.com slash 422. If you have questions for us that you would like us to get to 
on a future episode, go ahead and send those our way via Twitter. And if you're enjoying this podcast on a platform like Apple Podcasts where you can rate and review it, please take a moment to do that. We greatly appreciate it. And thank you to the many of you who've done that. It goes a long way to help support the work we're doing on this show. For Will Salmon, I'm Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. We're back with you next week from Section 422.